This morning, for the next few minutes, I simply want to share with you why I am a member of the Church of Christ. I want to begin our lesson this morning by focusing on a passage and calling your attention to a passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, where the Bible says, Sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks a reason for the hope that is in you in meekness and fear. You know, if one cannot turn to the Bible and find a thus saith the Lord for what he does religiously, then he's not able to give an answer to those who might ask a reason for the hope that he has. Doesn't the Lord admonish us in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 21 to prove all things and to hold fast that which is good? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Have you ever stopped and just simply asked yourself why you are a member of a certain church? Have you ever really taken some time and thought about and asked yourself the question, why am I what I am religiously? Why do I believe what I believe? Can you give a Bible answer for the faith that you hold? If not, are you sure that you've proved all things and are holding fast to that which is good? Then the Lord say in 1 John 4 and verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Try the spirits, test the spirits, whether they be of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. See, unless we constantly examine ourselves to see whether or not we be in the faith, isn't it possible on that last and final day that we might be surprised to learn that we are following false teaching? You know, the Bible does say that there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. Our Lord once declared in Matthew 15 and verse 13, every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, they all shall fall into the ditch. We read in Psalms 127 and verse 1, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman watches in vain. And so we ought to be challenged to continually search the Scriptures that we might know whether or not we are a part of the house the Lord Himself built. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews 3 and verse 6, but Christ as a son over His own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope firm unto the end. The Bible says here that Christ does have a house. The text says, whose house are we? But notice the condition. If we hold fast the confidence 
and the rejoicing of hope firm unto the end. You see, the only way that we can ever be assured of being in the Lord's house, according to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6, is if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm unto the end. But from where does this confidence come? What is the basis of this rejoicing hope? Well, confidence and faith come from God. Confidence and hope come because we have faith in God. Hebrews 11 and verse 1 says that faith is the realization of things hoped for, the confidence of things not seen. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so the only way today to give an answer to those who might ask a reason for the hope that we have is to let everything that we do religiously be governed by God's Word. You know, being a member of a certain church because that's the way I grew up or being what I am religiously because that's what my parents believed or that's what my relatives believe or, you know, that's what my friends are. You know, that's not a legitimate reason in and of itself. We need to have biblical authority for all that we do religiously. Now, with that being the case today, I hope you'll permit me to let you know why I am a member of the Church of Christ. I hope you'll consider the things that I'm going to say today with an open mind, an open heart, and an open Bible. And since I can only speak for myself and I cannot speak for others, I'm just going to simply tell you why I am a member of the Church of Christ. First of all this morning, I'm a member of the Church of Christ simply because of what it is called. When you turn to the pages of the New Testament, you'll find such expressions as the church in Acts 8 and verse 1. The church of the living God, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. The church of the Lord in Acts 20 and verse 28. The church of the firstborn in Hebrews 12 and verse 23. And the churches of Christ, Romans 16 and 16. It was Christ who built the church. He, in fact, called it His church in Matthew 16, verse 18. He is the head of the church and He's the Savior of the body according to Ephesians 5 and verse 23. He is the head of the body which is the church, Colossians 1 and verse 18. In Colossians 1 and verse 24, we find a very interesting expression. The Bible there says, for His body's sake, which is the church. Now, since the church belongs to Christ, should not the church be called after His name? I think it's certainly scriptural to refer to the Lord's body as the church of Christ. And it's because of this scriptural designation that I am a member of the Church of Christ. You know, I'm also a member of the Church of Christ today simply because of what its members are called. Again, when you go to the New Testament, 
you'll find that followers of Christ are called saints. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. They're referred to as disciples in Acts 20 and verse 7. They're called brethren in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6. They're called children of God in 1 John 3 and verse 1. They're called the sons of God in Romans 8 and verse 14. And they're called Christians. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, Acts 11 and verse 26. In Acts 26 and verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, Almost you persuade even me to be a Christian. Peter said in 1 Peter 4 and verse 16, If any man suffer as a Christian. And so surely it would be permissible to refer to followers of Christ as saints or disciples or brethren children of God, sons of God, or Christians. Because you see, all these expressions are found in the New Testament. In over in Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 2, God said that He would later call His people by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord would name. And no doubt that name was the name Christian. It's in this name that we are to glorify God, 1 Peter 4 and verse 16. Now some say today that a name really isn't important. Some say today that what you call yourself really isn't significant, that you know it really doesn't matter what one calls himself religiously. But if that be true, and it doesn't matter what one is called religiously, then why did the Lord say to glorify God in this name or on this behalf? Referring to the name Christian, 1 Peter 4 and verse 16. You know, concerning Jesus Christ Himself, the Bible says in Acts 4 and verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. And so there has to be something in a name. And religiously, we ought to only wear a name that would bring honor to the Lord. You know, the Bible never speaks of hyphenated Christians. The Bible never talks about this brand of Christian or this brand of Christian. It just simply talks about Christians. Members of the church call themselves simply Christians. And it's for this reason that I am a member of the Church of Christ. You know, I'm also a member of the Church of Christ because of its creed. You know, churches of Christ have no creed other than the Bible itself. Now, the average denominational member doesn't even realize and understand that most religious bodies today have a creed book, a standard manual that those religious bodies are required to follow. I remember several years ago, we were doing some research, and I called the largest church in this city and asked if I could just borrow the updated version of their creed book. The secretary on the phone said, what are you talking about? We don't have a creed book? What do you mean? Well, 
the so-called pastor was standing by and heard the conversation. He immediately took the phone from her and said, and talked to me and said, yeah, I'll be glad to let you borrow it. I just didn't want to spend the money on the newest version. You see, even she was not aware that their denominational church has a creed book, a standard by which they are to follow. Now let me ask you, brethren, what authority would we have to, to draw up some creed or dogma of faith and bind ourselves to those things when in the Bible we have everything that pertains to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1 and verse 3. Isn't the New Testament sufficient? Isn't the New Testament all we need to know how to please God? You know, what would be the purpose anyway of a church manual or creed book? If a creed book contains more than the Bible, it contains too much, doesn't it? If a creed book contains less than the Bible, doesn't it contain too little? And if a creed book contains just the Bible, then why in the world would we even have it to begin with? Why don't we just simply take the Bible and only the Bible and simply follow the pattern that's set forth in the New Testament? You see, there's no such thing as Church of Christ doctrine. There's no such thing as Church of Christ teaching. All we simply ask is for people to follow the Bible and only the Bible. And we're never going to ask you to obey or follow anything other than what you find on the pages of the New Testament. Didn't Paul tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 3 that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine? Didn't Paul tell Titus in Titus 2 and verse 1, but speak thou the things that become sound words? Didn't the Holy Spirit through Peter tell us in 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God? I want you to notice very carefully this teaching from the Lord in 2 John 1 and verse 9. There the Bible says, Whosoever transgresses, Goeth onward. That's the word from which we get our word progressive. Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ hath both the Father and the Son. And I submit to you today, if we would just simply take the one doctrine of Jesus Christ and be governed by it, we simply would not have the multiplicity of churches that we have today. See, creeds divide by nature. The doctrine of Christ will unite, and the church of Christ is simply pleading for a return to the doctrine of Christ and for the giving up of human creeds. Now, I want you to think with me for just a moment. Suppose somebody in a distant land who had never heard of any of the many and various churches that are now in existence today. Suppose that individual decided to take his Bible and through following it, endeavored to reproduce in that land a church that was as near to the New Testament pattern as he could find. What would he call that church? By what creed would that church be governed? 
Would that church be a reproduction of one of our present denominational bodies? Most definitely not. It takes a, a certain creed to produce a certain church. And if one would simply follow the teachings of Christ and, and completely divorce himself from the influence of any denominational creed, that which would result would be the Lord's church. And folks, do you realize that that exact thing has happened several times and in several places throughout the world? There have been those in times past who knew absolutely nothing at all about churches of Christ in America, but who simply took their Bibles and sought to follow the Bible as their pattern of faith. And did you know there resulted congregations wearing the same name and practicing the same things as churches of Christ in our land? Now, how do you account for this? Now, had we been following some creed other than the New Testament, such would have never been possible. You see, it's for this reason today that I am a member of the Church of Christ. You know, I'm also a member of the Church of Christ because of its organization. You know, churches of Christ have no headquarters here upon this earth. Each congregation is autonomous. That just simply means that each congregation is self-governing. No congregation is over or dictates policy to another congregation. See, what happens is when you have a, a group of churches that form a denomination and they go by a certain creed, we've seen where these groups send representatives and they have a convention and they decide what their official stance is going to be on certain issues. For example, they're going to decide what they're going to do and what their policy will be about same-sex marriage. Or they're going to decide their policy about women's role in leadership and what they can and cannot do. And so what happens here is, is when the convention gets together representing these multiplicity of churches and they make these policies, you have the whole group, all the churches following suit. When all they really need to do is just simply go to the Bible. Isn't God exemplifying great wisdom when He makes every church in the New Testament autonomous? You know, if church A here decides to go off the deep end, that doesn't mean that every other church is going to fall off with it. Each church is self-governing. Each church is organized with Christ as its head. And each congregation is to select its own elders to oversee the flock, as we see in Acts 14, verse 23. And you'll notice in the New Testament that these elders are called bishops in Titus 1, 5 through 7. They're called overseers in Acts 20 and verse 28. They're referred to as stewards in Titus 1 and verse 7. They're called pastors in Ephesians 4 and verse 11 or the presbytery in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14. And if you turn over to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and 
1 Peter 5 and Acts chapter 20, you'll find that the qualifications of elders are clearly set forth. And you know, deacons are likewise selected by each congregation. And their qualifications are clearly set forth in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we know according to the Bible, elders are to oversee the work of the congregation. Now, they never make decisions regarding matters of doctrine. Elders simply lead and make decisions in matters of judgment and opinion. For an example, no elder has the right to say, well, we're not going to meet on the Lord's Day anymore. We're going to meet on Saturday instead. They don't have that prerogative. But they do have the prerogative to decide when we're going to meet on Sunday. They have the prerogative to decide where the money that we give to God is going to be spent to try to share the gospel in a lost world. And deacons under the elders are special servants that are given specified assigned works. And that's exactly what transpired in New Testament times. And incidentally, that is the only organization that you'll find in the New Testament church. It's very interesting to me, and I would encourage you to maybe underline this in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. You'll find it all right here. The Bible says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, with all the saints in Jesus Christ, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Here in this one verse, you find the elders, you find the deacons, you find the evangelists, and you find the saints or the members. There's no authority for one bishop to be over other bishops. There's no authority for one elder to be over other elders. Peter tells us that an elder is never to lord it over God's heritage, 1 Peter 5 and verse 3. You know, placing one bishop over other bishops is a departure from the New Testament pattern. The same principle is true when one congregation would be placed over another congregation. And so we've got to respect the organization that God has set up in His Word. And because the church of Christ does respect that organization, I today am a member of it. But you know, I'm also a member of the church of Christ because of its worship. You know, the Bible tells us upon the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. Now, since the Lord said that the Lord's Supper is to be observed on the first day of the week, we know that it was a weekly affair because every week has a first day. If not, why was mention even made of the day of the week? Had the Lord told us that the disciples met on a certain day of the month, then we would have concluded that it was a monthly affair. All evidence points to the fact that the Lord's Supper was observed on the first day of the week. What authority do people have today to observe the Lord's Supper just four times a year or maybe two times a year? Or maybe they're going to observe the Lord's Supper in a wedding. Or maybe they're going to get together for something special on a Thursday or Friday night and 
They're going to observe the Lord's Supper on that occasion. See, churches of Christ observe the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week because of this important teaching in Acts 20 and verse 7. Furthermore, upon the Lord's Day, uh, we contribute of our means as was done in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2. Paul said there, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order unto the churches of Galatia, so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And so here we find the command to give into the church treasury on the first day of the week, and we are to do that as God has prospered us. That's why we don't have any yard sales for mission work. That's why you don't see us advertise other money-making schemes that have come to characterize the religious world. We advocate that each contribute according to his ability, his free will offerings unto the Lord. And then too, you'll observe that we don't have mechanical instruments in our worship. It's not because we don't have anybody that can play them. You know, it's not because we don't like music and, you know, we just don't care for that style of music. The reason we don't have mechanical instruments of music in worship is simply because the New Testament does not authorize the use of such. Every passage in the New Testament dealing with music in worship specifies singing very plainly. Now, had the Lord just given a general command to make music, then any kind of music would be acceptable. But because He specified singing, we don't have the right to engage or to change God's arrangement. We teach our kids and kids sing, or at least we used to. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. In Colossians 3 and verse 17, Whatsoever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Now, it's just simply a fact that for centuries, after the church had been established, there were no mechanical instruments of music used at all in worship. Any recognized historian will tell us that instruments of music were not used in worship until around the 6th century. And then it caused such a stir that it didn't even attempt to come back again for some 200 years later. Now, why is that? It wasn't because that they didn't have instruments of music way back then, but it was because the Lord had specified a certain kind of music. And so because of the way the church of Christ adheres to the New Testament order of worship, I today am a member of it. But you know, I'm also a member of the church of Christ simply because of its teaching on how to become a Christian. Now the scripture says in Ephesians 2 and verse 8 beginning, Now by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, what is meant by that expression here, 
not of works, lest any man should boast. Does that mean that no action at all is required on the part of man? Well, certainly not, because this verse says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And isn't faith an action on the part of man? Most certainly it is. Doesn't the Bible say that faith is a work? Yes, but it's the work of God. In John chapter 6 and verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God. What is it, Lord? That you may believe on Him whom He hath sent. And so what does the Bible mean when it says not of works? And furthermore, how do you harmonize this passage with what the Bible says in James 2 and verse 24 when it says, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Folks, it's not by the works of man's own righteousness. It's by the works of God's righteousness that one is saved. Peter said in Acts 10 and verse 35, in every nation... He that feareth him and works righteousness is accepted with him. You see, faith is a work of God's righteousness. When we put our faith into action, we're not working our own righteousness. We're working God's righteousness. Whenever we submit to God's commands in obedience, we are working His righteousness and not our own righteousness. What about repentance? Doesn't God demand that men repent? Of course. Acts 17 verse 30 says, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent. Now is repentance a work of man's own righteousness or is it a part of God's righteousness? Whenever we repent, we are working the righteousness of God. Well, what about baptism? Doesn't the Bible tell us that baptism saves us? Well, 1 Peter 3 and verse 21 says, The light figure whereunto even baptism also now saves us. Isn't it through baptism that one puts on Christ? Well, Galatians 3 and verse 27 says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Doesn't the Bible teach that we cannot walk in newness of life until we have been buried and raised with our Lord in baptism, Romans 6 and verse 4. Now Jesus tells us very plainly that baptism is a part of God's righteousness, Matthew 3 and verse 15. And so whenever an individual submits to God and he's scripturally baptized, he is not by his own works or his own merit earning salvation. He's simply submitting to the works of God's righteousness. That's the arrangement of God's grace. Righteousness comes from God. It never can come from us. And to be righteous today, we must submit to God's will completely because that is the source of true righteousness. You know, there's no example in the New Testament of an infant or a baby ever being baptized or christened. You know, that's a very common practice even in the religious world today. I have several friends who have had their babies 
not really very old at all, maybe just a few months, who have taken them to a certain building and they were christened, they were baptized. John Calvin, one of the most renowned religious leaders in centuries gone by, once made the statement, there's some babies in hell, not a span long. But folks, babies do not need to be baptized. Because the Bible said about babies and infants of such is the kingdom of heaven. We do not believe in infant membership simply because the New Testament does not teach it. There's no example anywhere of any person ever being voted into the Lord's church. We know that salvation is offered to all. God adds to the church those who are saved. Acts 2 and verse 47. And we believe that one must be a member of the church in order to be saved because the Bible says that Christ is the Savior of the body. And that body is the church according to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And therefore, for one to be saved, he must be a member of that which the Lord said he would save, which is the church, the body of Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, for by one spirit have we all been baptized into one body. Now folks, there are many other reasons today that I could give as to why I'm a member of the church of Christ. For example, I could talk about love and spend a lot of time emphasizing the importance of love. Jesus said in John 14, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one toward another. Love's important. If we don't love each other, doesn't that kind of nullify all these other things that we've talked about? But you know, it's possible to love and not be a member of the church. That's possible. And these other things that I'm trying and have emphasized today are distinguishing marks that the Bible points out of the church that Jesus built. These are things that are to be a part of our lives. They're to be a part of our conduct. And I want you to think very seriously and soberly this morning. Because of what the church of Christ is called, because of what its members are called, because of its creed, because of its organization, because of its worship, because of her teaching on how to become a Christian, these are some biblical reasons why I'm a member of the Church of Christ. I want to encourage you today not to stake your soul's eternal destiny on what some other man may say, don't stake your eternal salvation on the fact that you just believed what you've always believed because that's what your family's taught. I want to encourage you today to simply open up the Bible and take the Bible and the Bible alone and simply be a member of the church that you read about in the New Testament. This morning, you may be subject to the invitation. And if we can help you in any way, we ask that you come now while we stand.